Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Welcome back, everybody. I know you just heard us a few days ago, and here we are with episode 65, part two. What luck. I know. What luck. What, what a luck. true. You're all so lucky right now. We're so lucky right a now. Christmas miracle. Seriously. Uh, this is episode 65. Like I said, it's part two of our holiday spectacular. Um, today, we're going to be talking about things like pasteurized cheese food, sun-dried tomatoes, and a lone packet of cocoa mix. That's how I would <laughs> summarize today's episode. Um, but before we jump into all of that deliciousness, all of those fine, overpriced, processed <laughs> foods... Uh, you know Kim has a spiel for you. So, Kim, lay it on, everyone. All righty. Well, just as a reminder, you know, um, as we start this podcast back up again, um, it would be awesome if you could tell all of your friends and family, especially while you're sitting around, you know, a warm fire, drinking hot cocoa, leaning in for that almost kiss, you know, whisper the department. <laughs> Let everyone know we're back and we're better than ever. Um, second, also make sure that you follow us on your preferred streaming service so you don't miss a beat. And third, if you can give us a star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we appreciate it. Um, you can also find a lot more details and more um, inside jokes on our Instagram account at underscore the underscore department. And if you're looking for some show notes and image references and things like that, you can come to our website, thedepartment.world. I'll be updating those, uh, you know, this week and next. Wow, it just feels so good to be back in the game, back in the department game. So you said you had a question for me before we got started. Yeah, I do. I was just curious, Amanda, if you have any holiday trend traditions that you like to follow? You know, not really. Um, I've tried my hardest to embrace this time of year um, because, you know, I grew up in a family where the, the tradition was like fighting pretty much. And I just don't think that like that's a trend. We should continue. Yeah, nope. uh, so usually what Dustin and I do is we like to go on a trip oh. instead of, you know, like buying a ton of gifts and all of that. Um, this year we are going to go camping on actual Christmas, hopefully down by the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but a few days after Christmas, we are flying off to Japan. <sighs> so jelly. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm jealous of myself. I'm jealous of my future self, honestly. <laughs> yes. It's okay. You can all be jealous, too. We were, like, gonna go somewhere else, but we were like, oh, my God, tickets to Portland are $1,000. We may as well go to Japan. Yes, and then we were like, it's true. You might as well go overseas. We should overseas. just go to Japan. Mm -hmm. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what about you? Wait, will you do us, a, before I get into what I do, which is, you know, okay. so fascinating, will you do us all a favor? Will you let us know what trends are happening in Japan? Oh, for sure. I was already thinking that I'm going to try to make some reels 
for the department Instagram oh gosh, yes. while I'm there. Please. I've gotten really into reels. And I think, especially if we're like looking at what might be trends, I think that that's like a great way to share them. And then, of course, you know, when we do our first ap- episode after my trip, I will fill you in on some other stuff I saw. But I will tell you, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that a lot of style trends uh, that we see here start in Japan and have for quite some time. So I'm excited to see what's there. It's been like so many years. I want to see what shoes they're wearing. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm I'm ex- I'm excited. Too. Are you going to do a lot of shopping? Uh, I don't know. Or just checking out stores really, not really shopping. My favorite part is just going around and looking at all the stuff yeah, and like me too. It, it, it it fuels me creatively both like in my job and all the work I do on Clothes Horse and here just Visually, mm-hmm. it's so great. We're going to go see some art. We're doing like this experiential art thing called Team Lab Planets, which we did yes. the first time we went to Japan that. on our honeymoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really cool. We're going to do that. Um, we are going, this is not a trend per se. Well, it's a lifelong trend for me, Amanda Lee McCarty, which is we're going to Sanrio Perot Land, Ooh. aka Hello Kitty Land. I haven't been there for a long time. Uh, trend alert, S- Sanrio, going stronger than ever, actually, I would say. Um, just like saying that from a buyer's perspective. Um, and we're going to be going to, we're going to be spending a few days in Tokyo like we always do kind of at the end of the trip. But as soon as we get in, we're going to be taking off for Kyoto and we're going to Osaka. Um, and it'll be interesting. I've never been in Japan on the New Year's holiday, which is like a big deal there. So I'm excited. And I'm excited to eat a lot of 7-Eleven egg salad sandwiches. Oh, my gosh. And if you I know, love those things. You know. Yeah, oh. exactly. See? My second only to the other Japanese sandwich that you can get at 7-Eleven that is like some sort of like fluffy whip topping inside the sandwich with like cut up fruit. Oh, yeah. I, uh-huh. Can you even count that as a sandwich? I don't know. I, I mean, it's between bread. <laughs> sure. Bread. Anyway, so yeah, I'm also really excited about the food. Go to to- Tokyo hands. Tokyo hands. Oh yeah, definitely. That's my fave. That. So... I love that place. I do always end up buying interesting craft supplies oh, there. I love it. I'm so excited for you. There's going to be so much cool stuff in those malls. Those like crazy malls that are oh, just stuffed, let's... stacked on top of each other. Oh. And when you like hear here that malls are dead, which is like, guess what, guys? Not true. It's just like what malls are has changed and where malls succeed has changed. Um, I'm obsessed with that topic as well. But in Japan, the malls are alive Mm -hmm. and thriving. And I think one reason why is that they are very thematically focused on specific customers. So I, my favorite malls to go to are actually the teenage girl malls um, because they have like arcades and all those photo booth places and interesting clothes to look at that are always like two steps ahead of the trends here. Um, there'll be like weird like dessert buffets and oh, like love places a where you buffet. can get novelty drinks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like teenage girl malls bring yes. them here. Yes, um, that is like a missed opportunity. You know, this whole like American thing of like anything that women or girls likes, like shitting on it and dismissing it as, as low quality or inferior, uh, you're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're all wrong. <laughs> it's the best stuff. Um, and if we could lean into that, malls would be thriving oh more than ever. Yes, it's like a yeah. place to like experience and enjoy things where it's not just because uh, they, they really are trying to be everything to everyone. But if you're just. Um, you know, creating an experience for a specific demographic. That sounds so cool. Yeah, it's it's it works out so well. The first time we went to a mall in Japan was sort of by accident. Dustin 
I don't know, he'd like forgotten to bring socks or something like that. It was one of those things. And I was like, wait, what? To bring socks. What is this paradise uh-huh. in which I have just <laughs> found myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was incredible. So anyway, yeah, excited about that trip. Not saying it's a Christmas tradition, but maybe it could be. And I'll just start going to Japan every Christmas, which would be like, wow, what a life. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty nice life. Yeah. Well, my Christmas, you know, we're... The as a trend, I think we need to talk about at some point is like the cost of living crisis. Um, yes, you know, and as you also touched on, like airplane tickets are absolutely bonkers. Specifically, domestic, domestic airfare. Exactly. Uh, yeah, like it wasn't much more expensive for us to buy tickets to Tokyo in comparison to flying to Portland. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. It was going to end up being probably more expensive for us to go to Portland because also hotels were more expensive. Yes. Exactly. And I, I was actually reading that inflation on, on airplane tickets is uh, one of the highest things that's actually inflated right now. And hopefully will come down um, next year, probably after summer, um, if then. <sighs> it's going to be bad. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I usually go home to Wisconsin for Christmas, uh, but I was actually just there uh, for a couple of weeks because my, my father has been kind of in and out of the hospital. So I wanted to spend a little time there. Um and I knew that's just like travel during Christmas is just absolutely abysmal. And I just don't need that stress right now. <laughs> yeah, and it's so seriously. expensive. So uh, Neil and I are staying here. Uh, we're going to go to San Luis Obispo for um, a couple of days to see his family. But the trends that I have, um, not too many. Um, usually it just involves cookies. So we'll be mm. making some cookies. And I usually make the um, those like uh, peanut butter kiss cookies. Oh, this is like the Kim signature. Mm -hmm. And if you are lucky enough to get some of these from Kim, they are perfection. (laughs) You've had them? Yes. At some point you gave me one. I can't remember when, but I was like, oh my God, this is the best cookie. Oh, they're so good. Because sometimes we would have those growing up, but Mm -hmm. like no one in my family was good at making them. Like you nail it. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's basically, I actually just got a bunch of Hershey Kisses, which of course Hershey, I just keep thinking about our episode about how Hershey's is made with that like putrefied I think about it all the time, (laughs) yes. Yes, because someone gave me a Hershey bar at Ew. work, like a little tiny oh, one okay. on Halloween. I was, like a, I was thinking a large and, bar. I was like, who even eats oh, that? No, that would be, that's gross. Mm-hmm. That, I think that you're a pedophile mm-hmm. then. I don't know what it is. But uh, someone gave me a little one and I I felt like they were like, waiting for me to eat it <laughs> and i don't like eat a lot of sweets actually because like you know as i mentioned on the show before i have like all the stomach problems and i was like all right <laughs> to myself oh, i'm gonna eat this thing but i was thinking about the weird sour uh-huh. milk flavor remember we talked about that you can it's all you can yeah. taste now that you know mm-hmm. that's all i'm saying but it's different with her it she really, kisses yeah I don't feel like it's, it's not noticeable. as bad and they are just amazing <laughs> in these cookies yeah no they're different they're so they're different. good so oh. i actually just got a big bulk bag of them so I can make these cookies. Um, so that's basically, that's it. I actually did put up some lights, shockingly, in the in the apartment, but, you know, I'm not a big decorator. Nice. I just, nice. there's nothing I, I just, <sighs> decorating and then taking it down just seems like such a chore. So, yeah. It is. It is. I wish I could just snap my fingers and it would be put away, but I did uh, put up a tree. It is pink. You know, is my favorite color, and it's, it looks great with all That's of our really ornaments. Cute. And I, on our road trip to New Mexico for Thanksgiving break, um, Thanksgiving break, like I'm in college, uh, we we actually went back to White Sands where I got married, which you know because mm-hmm. you were there. And let me tell you, 
I did some of the all-time best thrifting like that I've done in, since we moved to Texas for sure. And I got a lot of really great uh, Christmas stuff, including all of this garland that has to be from like the 60s wow. or 70s that is like fake candy and candy canes. And it has that weird smell of plastic <laughs> from that era. Um, so I'm really psyched on my tree. And I actually, um, you know, something that I've always struggled with, which we're going to talk about a lot actually in this episode is this idea of like corporate gifting, work gifting. Like you want to show your appreciation for the people on your team by giving them something thoughtful, but like it can't be too personal or weird, right? And so I just was like, I don't want to get on my team a bottle of wine or something. Like, I want to do something cooler. So I'm having my whole team over for dinner this Friday night as my gift to them. And I'm making hot pot. And we're going to have champagne punch. And we're just going to hang out and have fun. Oh, my gosh. Your champagne punch is dangerous. It's dangerous. I know. I'm going to water it down a little. I'm going to water it down a little. I already thought about that. uh, Because I was like this. I can't. Like, everybody will have to stay here or something. So much destruction. (laughs) Dustin will have to, like, drive everybody home like a little bus. Uh, And I don't want anybody to be here on Saturday. Because Saturday, I'm cooking a whole bunch of food to send to Dylan. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, as, like, part of their Christmas gifts. So... I guess I'm doing like some holiday stuff, but like I'm really excited to go camping for a couple of days and be by the ocean and eat whatever meal I can prepare in an RV, you know, for Thanksgiving, you know, like I don't care about Thanksgiving and I have a lot of problems with it actually, but you know, I still like love cooking. As you know, you came up to Portland for Thanksgiving. We had like the best mm-hmm. one ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I had for my big meal on Thanksgiving this year was a salad that I ate in the Del, pa- <laughs> the Del Taco parking lot <laughs> in Alamogordo, oh. New Mexico. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So anyway. Delt. <laughs> only only can get better. Oh. And then and then it turned to this thing where I was like, I can't believe I haven't had any pie <laughs> in this whole year. So on our next night, when or like our last night, we were in Big Springs, Texas. We went to H-E-B and we got a pumpkin pie. It was the last one they had there. And we literally sat on the couch watching Lifetime Christmas movies. <laughs> and we only ate the inside out of the pie. And I was like, this feels so rock star. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> it was great. Anyway, yeah. So who knows what the holidays will hold for us. Um, but I do know one thing they will hold Ooh. for me. And that is a lot of gift baskets at work. So let's jump right in to... This trend gone awry. Um, so I had a coworker at one of my jobs. She was a lovely person, but she had this habit of posting photos on Instagram of like racks of clothing with just the right amount of sunlight coming through and swatches of fabrics that were carefully arranged as to look aesthetically pleasing, but also appear as if they had been just casually tossed there in the midst of some very important fashion <laughs> business action. And she would do this. She would always caption them with a single lonely hashtag. Hashtag buyer's life. Oh, and my. <laughs> I know. I mean, as you know, Kim and I, both buyers, uh, we can we can speak to the lack of glamour in this career path. Uh, this sort of turned into a joke amongst our team as we began to try to find the grossest things we could find <laughs> to post with the caption hashtag buyer's life. But it, it had to relate to us being like at work or on a work trip. So like a bottle of Pepto-Bismol purchased for $15 at the airport, you know, after you ate too much weird food in the snack bar at Magic or a mountain of discarded Starbucks cups 
piled on the floor of like the Las Vegas Convention Center. Um, I still think about it and I laugh Las to myself. Just, I'm sorry, the, the, the Las Vegas Convention Center. Oh, or, I spent so much time there. Or perhaps the, the Convention Center at, um, oh my God, what is the hotel on the other, um, at Mandalay mm-hmm. Bay, which actually Magic is so shrunk now that they don't even use Mandalay Bay for the show. The last time I went, it was so sad. It was all in the Las Vegas Convention Center. Um, and it was like tumbleweed rolling through there. Anyway, I still think about this hashtag. And when I'm traveling for work, I will laugh to myself all the time because I will see gross things <laughs> or I will feel experience gross things. Right. While I'm on these trips and I'm always like mm, hashtag buyer's life. Like one time we were on a trip and I walked so much, which is always part of it, that my a hole wore in my socks <laughs> and then my foot started bleeding. And as I was taking <laughs> off my shoe that night, I was like, yep buyer's life right here um elegant. but nothing ele- always elegant. elegant what what a dream job right <laughs> <laughs> i always think of like another thing that always makes me think like hashtag buyer's life are those protein plates from starbucks oh, because God. i've eaten so, so many, many of those of on those. work trips yeah um oh. but nothing screams buyer's life in all of its excess waste and frequent disappointment than the endless parade of wine country gift baskets that we would receive every holiday from our vendors. Um, and like, the, as you probably guessed, this would be a basket of like crackers and cheese that strangely doesn't need to be refrigerated yes. and some nuts and weird it's like plastic and stuff like Yeah, uh, lots of plastic, mm-hmm. lots of packaging. It would come in a huge ass box. I have no doubt they were very expensive. In more recent years, it's shifted to more trendy things that are also very expensive and somehow disappointing, even though you've had versions of this in the past that were nice. Like those layer cakes mm-hmm. from Milk Bar. The year before the pandemic, our vendor sent four or five of those. I was like, I never want to see what? one of those birthday cakes from Milk Bar ever again. Like a full cake full cake it's like a thing um and i did go look on the milk bar website and they do corporate gifting so it makes yeah. sense um chocolate dipped strawberries that's another one where you're like oh that sounds good until you get them every day for three weeks all of these things are so expensive like i checked it out today and i know there's inflation but i'm assuming the vendors are still doing this kind of stuff to get two dozen chocolate dipped strawberries, it's about $80 plus shipping. Whoa. A cake from Milk Bar will be $60 to $140 plus shipping. The margins and on these things. I know. I know. Um, and I do think, like, and we're going to talk about this more, this is a whole industry that thrives off of corporate gifting. Mm-hmm. Because in most cases, though, like the people placing these orders are far less price resistant to something like this than if like I were gonna send you a cake. I would be like, $140, I don't think so. You're getting a cake mix, right? Um, yeah. And like t- to get two dozen chocolate dipped strawberries for $80 plus shipping is just insane to me. Um, and it's probably Hershey's chocolate, so you know it's gonna taste like sour milk. <laughs> Um, and the yes. thing is, like, this sounds really nice. And I will tell you, the first year that I worked in buying and the stuff started showing up, I was like, oh, my God. Hashtag buyer's life is a life of luxury. I can't believe people just send us stuff for no reason and we get to have it, right? I'll never need to grocery shop again. But by the time you've opened your 10th cake or gift basket, yeah. the thrill it do- is it gone. Does. It's like being on, it's being on, like, a road trip and eating at McDonald's constantly and you're just like... I feel like there's no nutrients <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Like I'm weak. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just like, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. Like, what happens in your office is like, you know, by Christmas, there's just baskets and baskets mm-hmm. everywhere. Maybe maybe someone on your team who's a neat freak consolidates them all down into one because all of these baskets are like 50% packaging anyway. And so maybe they clear all that stuff out and then they throw everything in there. And what happens over the week's leading up to Christmas and after Christmas is that slowly things get eaten out of there until you're left with the least desirable stuff. But the thing is, none of it was that desirable in the first place. And it's nothing that you would have ever bought for yourself. Not because you don't deserve nice things or think you don't deserve nice things, but because these things aren't nice. You know? Um, yeah. You're like, you're I, like I want the quality stuff. Yeah. Like, where's yeah, exactly. the $160 uh, strawberries? Yeah, exactly. I want what my are strawberries those? made from Godiva chocolates. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, like, everybody who receives these is kind of, like, over it after you first get it. And I know we probably sound really ungrateful, but these just are, like, not... Everyone's getting scammed in this situation. The thing is, this tradition of corporate gifting remains alive and well. Forbes estimates the size of this industry, and we're just talking about stuff that uh, companies are buying for their clients, their vendors, maybe their employees. They're estimating this industry that sends gift baskets, cakes, cases of wines, cheeses, foil-wrapped fruit, so much more. It's each year $242 billion with a B dollars. And it actually grew during the pandemic as more and more companies bought more and more of these gifts because they felt like without seeing people in real life, they needed to gift and harder. Yeah. $242 billion. Dollars worth of chocolate dipped strawberries and cheese that doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's wild. I want to know who is making the most out of this. Like, who has the most market share? I know. I mean, I'm going to focus on what are the biggest Mm -hmm. companies out there, but I'm going to tell you, I was telling... Kim, before we started recording, like getting this information was really, really hard because not a lot of people are talking about it, but we should be because $242 billion is huge. Yeah. So gift baskets, cakes, all that fruit are part of the longtime tradition of vendors giving their buyers gifts at holidays as a token of thanks for the business and hopefully a reminder to buy from them again. And like I said, companies are doing this with all of their accounts, their vendors, their employees, that kind of thing. When you're a buyer, companies forbid you from accepting expensive gifts or money. Like, for example, some place at, one place I worked, a vendor sent everybody Marc Jacobs wallets and we had to send them all back. Oh, wow. Or at ModCloth, if if a vendor sent you money or a nice gift, someone swooped in and took them all, and then they did a raffle at the end of the year for the whole company. So it didn't, like, really come to us. Uh, We didn't get to have it. And I think that that's because they don't want you to be bribed into buying stuff, right? It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So gift baskets it is for everyone. The first box of Godiva chocolate that you receive feels luxurious. Oh, exactly. Like where have you exactly. been my whole life? OMG. Like this is the this novelty. is what it's like to be a queen. Yeah. Exactly. But two weeks later, everyone in your family is receiving one as a regift because you've got like twenty in the backseat of your car. I mean, this is just how it goes. You're and also by the way, in the industry. And of course everyone's you know, it's all about not appearance. eating appearance. Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, so it's it's a it's a double edged sword for sure. I remember I would feel a lot of angst at this time of year. At my last job, where the cakes kept showing up, I was like, oh my, oh god, my god, I can't take it anymore. Um, by the way, for anyone who is wondering if it came down to Godiva chocolates or C's chocolates, I'm always going to vote C. That's all I'm saying. Mrs. C's the best. Um, they're more nutty. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. As we started talking about this episode, I wondered to myself, when did the gift basket industry become a big-ass industry? I mean, once again, $242 billion is wild. And that's just the corporate gifting. That's not the gift baskets people send to one another, right? And I wondered, like a lot of things that we now consider passe or commodified to the point of losing its appeal, which I think... Kim, you and I would both agree we feel this way about gift baskets, right? Was there a moment when gift baskets were the hot gift? You know, whenever I think about trends, I... They all kind whether they're social or fashion trends, they all follow a trajectory that's very similar to the trajectory of skinny jeans. And I like to cite skinny jeans because it's... It's a trend cycle that most of us have lived through and we're really familiar with, no matter what point in that trend cycle we adopted skinny jeans, right? Mm-hmm. So skinny jeans started as super stylish and even they were like the cutting edge. Hip. Right? Yeah. It was like Yeah, yeah. like it was only hard a, to find. Right. Only a few people wore them mm-hmm. and these were like the tastemakers. Then that trickled down a little bit and they became like the it item for stylish people to wear but they still weren't like you weren't going to go find them at like walmart right like they were still they still had cachet and a lot of it models off duty right (laughs) right then they became like okay you can get them at old navy Mm -hmm. you can get them at walmart everyone's wearing skinny jeans and we're all coexisting with it and it's great then they became a little bit less popular with people who were more style driven um, they were definitely no longer cutting edge, but they were still common. And definitely companies were making a lot of money off of skinny jeans. And then they were chuggy. It was over. Mm-hmm. And if you wore them, which if you like skinny jeans, you should wear them forever. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But, you know, like the the messaging out there on like style blogs and social media was that like, oh, don't wear skinny jeans. They're over. Right. So that's the skinny jeans paradox, if you will. And uh Skinny jeans will probably come back again. That's how that also works. Yeah, exactly. I, I just put them away and, and they'll come back. I think it could be, I mean, prediction here, I think it's going to be in the next two years. Because yeah. um, the trend cycles are mm-hmm, getting so exactly. fast. <laughs> so I wondered, when did gift baskets feel like a fresh alternative to a boot cut, right? There must have been a time. And then they got ruined along the way. But like, where did they start as a cool thing? So this was like, once again, not enough people writing about gift baskets. <laughs> uh, it's it like, it's really, clearly I, like an underground secret where, I mean, people are making bank off of this thing. I know. It's massive. Like, so much Where's money. the hipster gift basket out there? I'm sure that there's a lot of opportunity. Seriously. Well, I would buy that probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I did notice in my research, which 
I mean, I had to go into some major corners of the internet here to find stuff, is that there are people out there who sell classes that teach you how to start your own business selling gift baskets to companies that it's like lucrative. So I'm just putting that in your ear if you've been looking, any of you out there to do something different. Uh, maybe you could be the person to create awesome gift baskets. And then we'll have you on the podcast. We'll like talk about it, <laughs> you know, um, and how you're like reclaiming it. And then we'll all talk about how skinny jeans are back at the same time. So it turns out that the Christmas basket is where this all begins. It's known in the UK and Europe as a Christmas hamper. Uh, totally filled my mind with memories of my favorite book when I was little, uh, The Little Princess. Oh, yeah. Love that book so much. Um, there were a lot of hampers in that. And I remember at the time <laughs> thinking they meant where you put your laundry. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's also what people call a basket. <laughs> and this, the history of the Christmas basket, the Christmas hamper, goes back way further than I imagine. You know, we can all agree that giving food as a gift is always a great idea. And it's certainly a timeless idea embraced by many cultures around the world. But I'm focusing on the Christmas baskets specifically because they are definitely the forefathers of those wine country gift baskets we received by the UPS truckload at a lot of my jobs. <laughs> like there's a direct correlation there, I can assure you. Um, before we jump in, you know, I did want to ask you, this is something that was trending on social media and I wondered if you'd seen it. Kim, it was the whole chili neighbor controversy. Chili neighbor? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. Okay. I don't so speaking about. of gifts as food, because this started a, like a big, a big fire on Twitter. So I will preface this by saying, I don't like Twitter. I don't get it. Every time I go in there, I get upset. People are total jerk stores on Twitter. But that's where this started. So there is a woman who has like a lot of followers. Um, she has a pet pig. Um, she's a really big disability rights advocate. She's just like a, I want to say she's like 100,000 followers on Twitter. And she posted about how she had these new neighbors. Uh, there were a bunch of boys. They were in college. And uh, she noticed that they ordered takeout for just like every meal. There were always a lot of pizza boxes in the recycling. A few times DoorDash had showed up at their her door instead of at theirs. And so she thought, you know, I'd really like to get to know them. I think I'm going to make them a pot of chili and take it over and like introduce myself, which to me is like, what a what a lovely idea. Yeah, People don't do that, that enough. Is that nice. is a very a classic meal. thing. Yeah. Right. And so she made the chili and she documented it on Twitter and then she took it over to them and they were like wow thank you so much we were actually just about to order food and now we don't have to you know we would like to do something nice for you in return we noticed that your fence needs fixing would you let us fix that for you next weekend that should have been the end of a lovely story about how it is so important to get to know your neighbors and how like how these kinds of relationships are the backbone of our communities, right? No. Instead, it turned into just like an enormous shit show on Twitter. Oh, no. <laughs> um, people criticizing her chili recipe. Uh, people. Whoa. That one, I was like, well, it did look a little weird. It had uh, what appeared to be squash made with a melon baller in it. But you know what? Like, that might be good. I could, I'd eat that probably. Um, but more importantly, this conversation started that. Uh, making chili for other people is ableist and it's the equivalent of pushing someone in a wheelchair um, when they haven't asked for assistance. And 
I know there's that doesn't make any sense either. But there was like, well, what if they don't like bowls? What if they don't like beans? What if they have dietary issues? What if they have sensory issues? Like it was really messed up for you to just make them food. And I suppose it would probably would have been better for her to ask them, you know, like to go over and introduce herself and ask if she could make them some chili that she'd been thinking about it and that they have any preferences. For sure. I agree. But like the way people were piling on this woman on Twitter was like only in 2022 could something like that happen. Right. You know? Exactly. It was ridiculous. But it did bring this whole like, conversation up of like sharing food as a gift, you know, and like why it's fallen out of favor and how many people were just like, I would be so excited if someone brought me a meal because I'm always cooking or I don't have money for groceries and, you know, food is even more of a luxury now than it's ever been. So I think that's like also what planted in the seed, the seed in my mind of like, what the heck is the deal? with these gift baskets, which feel like so much wasted food. So the idea of filling a basket with a bunch of luxurious food gifts, like wine, cheese, cakes, puddings, and pies, was actually imported from France into the UK around the 11th century. In 1066, a guy called William the Conqueror introduced the concept to England, and he totally got it from France. Even though he was also known, interestingly enough, as William the Bastard, Ooh. his hampers were filled with food and clothing for needy families, and he used it as a charitable thing. So which right? is it? Is he a conqueror or a bastard? Well, I think it was bastard in the old-timey, old-timey uh, sense. Mean, where like, mm. he, his parents weren't married, but not in the, like, I'm a jerk way, yeah. <laughs> I think. So, yeah. Well, he's got hampers going out. He's a great guy. Yeah, like a he's cool filled his hampers yeah. right and left. Um, and, and these hampers were always made of wicker, making them lightweight and easy to transport. They're also inexpensive to build. Furthermore, it was intended to be reused by the recipient for transporting laundry, produce, all of those things. The basketness of gift baskets is a key component of its history. Ironically, at one of my jobs, we received a wicker canoe that was about six Whoa. feet long. Uh, not sure how we were supposed to reuse that. And it was full of three times as many cheese breadsticks and chocolate-covered shortbread. I mean, it was insane. I couldn't even find it on any websites, but my speculation is that it was well more than $1,000 wow. based on what I was seeing. Yeah. Um, at the same time, wealthy aristocrats would also use hampers, you know, a nice wicker hamper, for picnics of delicacies and seasonal delights, which probably helped contribute to the more modern idea of a gourmet mm -hmm. gift basket. Like, there were positive connotations to the sorts of food that one could find in a basket. By the 17th century, many Europeans began to use stagecoaches and other wagons to get around sounds horrible to me makes me feel car sick just thinking about it because i'm sure there was a lot of rocking and bumping and it was boring um and because these trips would be so long they would often take a basket of special foods and drinks to make the trip a little bit more bearable imagine just like nice. drinking a whole bunch of wine like, in a bumpy yeah ass instead of like a cooler it's like a basket of like snacks <laughs> yeah it sounds nice mm -hmm. right it's road trip snacks um, when rail travel became more commonplace, these hampers became more elaborate, including fresh items like dairy, nice-to-haves like coffee, tea, jam, and sweets. And the increased speed of rail travel versus, say, horse or wagon meant that more perishable items could be sent to other people, which began the idea of giving special foods as gifts, like special regional oh, foods yeah, as gifts. Okay. By the Victorian era... The Christmas hamper became the hot gift 
to give your maids and other servants. These hampers would contain food and drinks that the servants couldn't normally afford. It was imperative that these baskets were luxurious, right? The finest drinks, the finest Well, I'm sure it got around. You know, we've seen um, the PBS documentary, not documentaries, the PBS (laughs) shows. um, Downton Abbey. Abbey. Thank you, Downton Abbey. (laughs) I'm sure it got around. Yeah, like, oh, my gift basket only had uh, Cozy Shack rice pudding in it. Well, actually, I'd I'd like that. Never mind. Why am I complaining? Give me the hamper. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it would definitely get around if... If someone had a better basket than someone else, without a doubt. So, of course, the United States followed suit with this trend, calling their version gift baskets. We we were like, no, no, sir. A hamper is for dirty laundry. <laughs> exclusively. Um, you do not put exclusively. food in a hamper. That's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the intention was the same here, though, gifting the recipient with special seasonal items and gourmet foods. And in World War I, family members all across the world would send similar special gift boxes and parcels to soldiers, often containing homemade, once again, regional mm-hmm. food items made by family members. The Red Cross also sent special gift boxes to soldiers. I mean, in World War II, that practice continued with simple luxuries like clean socks and new razor blades added. Care packages, you know. Up until this point, the majority of the items in a gift basket or a hamper, not a laundry hamper, would be made at home or purchased locally, whether it was baked goods, cheeses, wines, liqueurs, whatnot. But in the 1920s, gift baskets began to turn into an industry as more and more people were living in cities and working outside the home. They couldn't go out and make all of the, like pick all the seasonal produce and make the local wine and the special cheese from their county. You know, they had to order it. It was easier to buy your gift mask baskets pre-made than take the time to track down all that special stuff and make all those candies and cakes. And, you know, initially it definitely began as a luxury item for only the wealthiest people. I pasted an ad in here for a Christmas hamper. This one looks more like a hamper to me. I mean, it straight it, up has it a It does lid. look like a hamper. Right. And this one, I want to say, is from the 1920s. It includes one turkey, about 12 pounds, or a cooked boneless ham. But the turkey, it's not like a... (laughs) This is like a turkey with feathers on it. I don't think that's really what you're getting. I hope not, because that's that's weird. Um, But the illustration does convey that it would be that. Hopefully this is one of those cases of advertising not being accurate. Wait, when was was Prohibition? Wasn't that in the... Uh, 1919, and the country went dry at midnight on... January 17th, 1920 and ended in 1933. So this would have had to have been this ad I'm showing is like pre-prohibition or right after right. it. Of course, this is from the UK, so it could have been from this time of period. Course, like that of time course, of course. There's, there's so, yeah, there's a bottle of sherry in here. There's sherry in there. You get number two Christmas pudding, one pot mincemeat, one box of crystallized fruits, one tin of rich mixed biscuits, Half a pound of crystallized ginger, which is very luxurious. That stuff is expensive. Two pounds of Christmas almond iced rich fruitcake. One tin of arcade toffee. One box of dessert figs. One box of crackers. One pound box of assorted chocolates. 
half a pound of Carlsbad plums, one pound of muscatels, which I don't know what that is, and one bottle of fine tawny port or superior dry sherry. As of, I love port. So this gift basket sounds amazing to me. Bring it over to me. I will reuse that basket too. So at this point, this was like luxury. Like the recipient of this probably wouldn't eat that kind of food very often, you know? And they would make this last for a long time or bring it out when they were entertaining. Um, it wouldn't be that they would be picking through it and then eating it next to the printer around January 12th, you know? Um, it would be like, let's have a special tea and serve these things. It says carriage paid and it says 50, does that's $50? It's 50 pence. I believe it is like $7 now or something like that. It was very affordable. <laughs> Wait, this hamper it, was only seven dollars. What you know, back then it was like you know, like well more than a hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, it was course, a different okay. time. It was a different time. Yeah, I mean, and lux- luxurious, mm-hmm. right? And it seems like a good value for the money it in really comparison does. to where we see the baskets now. In the 1920s, we start to see regional food gifts becoming a thing. For example. That was when cheese lover Ray Kubley began a small cheese shipping business that would become an army, a huge army of catalogs, and that is Swiss Colony. Yes. So Swiss Colony, a.k.a. America's number one food gifts catalog. That's according to the Swiss Colony website. I don't know if it's true. Once again, no one covering this stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think you, you, could, yeah, you could claim anything. You could claim anything. Uh, to me, as a child, Swiss Colony was the most sophisticated catalog for the true gourmands. It was. For people trusted. who probably... Oh, right? Cho- totally Quality. Trusted. Quality. European. This is for people mm-hmm. who owned yachts mm-hmm. and spent the holidays skiing in the Alps. It was, it was for people who had been to Europe, right? Because wasn't Swiss Colony, you know, Swiss and therefore European and therefore fancy? Well, it turns out, and this may not surprise you, you at all, Kim, because you are from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out the Swiss colony actually began in 1926 in neither Geneva nor Zurich, nor even a bucolic Alpine village, but instead in Monroe, Wisconsin, here in the good old United States yes. of America. Apparently, Monroe had both a strong concentration it's of Monroe. Swiss immigrants. Oh, Monroe. Just so you know. Monroe. It's Monroe. Okay, well, Apparently, Monroe had both a strong concentration of Swiss immigrants and a history of making a lot of cheese. Is Does this add up to you? It, it actually does, because um, when, when when I go um, back to Wisconsin, we like to go to this little town called New Glarus, um, mm-hmm. which is a Swiss town. Um, they also have like a brewery, but they have like really cute little like it's like it's actually like. Swiss architecture, and you can go oh, to the. Cute. You go and get like um, Swiss. There's a there's a restaurant that we like to go to, and you can get like um, what's that cheese? The um, fondue. fondue, and it's really oh. fun. It's a really fun little town. But yeah, we've got definitely a lot of Swiss Im- immigration happening in Interesting. that area. There, there's that Swiss town in California that's not too far from San Luis Obispo, but I can't remember the name of it. Hmm. But that movie, you talked about in another episode about the guys who were assholes who were at the wine town. Oh, and yes. What was that town? That's oh, the same town. Yes, 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 yes. Ugh. Solvang. Yes, Solvang. So it's actually Danish. Oh, ah, okay. okay. Um, anyway, so, similar kind of vibe, I'm sure. Okay, so 
Ray Kubley, the founder of Swiss Colony, was actually a senior at the University of Wisconsin that year. My alma mater. What? You're basically the same person. We really are. Yep. You really are. And one of his school projects was considering the pros and cons of creating a business selling Wisconsin cheese via mail order. Now, it was no coincidence that Ray had cheese on his mind because according to the Swiss Colony website, Ray's hometown was the unofficial cheese capital of the biggest cheese producing state in the nation. So cheese was like in his blood. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He's a cheeseman. Um, well, after he graduated, he couldn't stop thinking about this cheese mail order business because there was this growing interest in regional foods. So he decided to go for it. And per Swiss colony legend, he mailed out handbills, which he himself designed and stamped. And they advertised cuts of Wisconsin made bulk cheeses for the upcoming holidays. As the orders came in, he cut the huge wheels of cheese into pieces by hand, then wrapped and shipped them. And in his first year of business, he sold all 50 packages of cheese that he had prepared. Okay, 50, not that much. This is the very early days. This is like the skinny jeans are only available at one store (laughs) era of Swiss Colony, right? But by 1941, which was 15 years later, Swiss Colony had 100 seasonal employees. Because the thing about all of these catalogs, all of them, is that they they do the majority i mean and i'm talking i'm not talking like oh 75% i'm talking like 95% of their business happens in you know like october november december like that's it and then like the rest of the year they're just planning Absolutely. the next thing right yes. um and one of my first buying jobs one of the categories i managed was gloves and it was a very similar thing where it would be like january and i'm starting to pick out yarns for next winter you know cuz like you have a very limited time period you got to nail the assortment planning i'm sure it's the same thing here when you're in the christmas food business wait sorry i have to interrupt you i'm actually on the swiss colony website have you ever gotten a swiss colony gift basket f- from any of your work I mean, that not looks so amazing. No, but I would get them from my mom sometimes or my grandma. And you know what? Unlike the baskets that we would get at the office, these are actually good. Like, and I, I think I know why I'm going to go into that. mustard, yum. This and their big am- goods are incredible. They're like incredible. Um, I think it's because, I mean, spoiler, I think it's because they own all the means of production. Yes, and I think that makes quality. a really big difference. Yeah, so by 1941, they're big, and, like, they have 100 seasonal employees. They're really nailing this gift season. And at this point, only the most luxurious customers, uh, like Eleanor Roosevelt, Jimmy Stewart, Ginger Rogers, Ronald Reagan, many other celebrities who loved giving cheese as a gift. It was this idea of, like, regional foods that are hard for people to find, here they are. Here's your special gift. And when you get it, you're going to treasure this, yes, right? You're going to be like, exactly. oh, my God, we're going to eat this on my birthday or something like that. Just a few years later, that business had grown so much that the railroad had to send an extra boxcar to Monroe every <laughs> week in December just to transport all of these holiday cheese orders. And at this point, they're just doing cheese. This is all cheese, okay? Um, over time, though, Swiss Colony did add sausage, bakery products, candies, other sweets to its product offering. And these included fruitcake, tort, and these petite fours that are like 
they're amazing. I've had them a couple times and they have little like snowmen and stuff on them. Five stars. Um, they, they really nailed it. They did a lot of research and uh, development into everything that they ended up creating, especially the baked goods. You know, um, so pedophores, which um, uh-huh. I, I was raised um, calling them, particularly in the Midwest, we had them because obviously the Swiss colony. Um, but I went to a little bakery out here, a little French bakery, and they they're pronounced petite foie. Petite foie. I was like, oh my God, I've been saying it (laughs) this horrible way this entire time. No, that's so Midwest, though. I know. Because everybody I've talked to from the Midwest says petit four. And uh, everybody in Pennsylvania says petit four, which is like closer, Mm -hmm. but like not really. Um, So the story (laughs) of them bringing in what is a very French dessert, if I recall, is that uh, Ray Kubli's wife. You know, every time she would entertain around the holidays, naturally, she's serving Swiss colony of course. food, right? I mean, she has to. Yes. People probably were, like, stoked. They were like, oh, my God, and we eat so much cheese when I get over there. And she was saying, like, she wished she had desserts that were good, like, finger party foods. Yes, exactly. And someone was like, oh, I remember having these in France one time mm-hmm. or something. It was very Midwestern, I'm sure. And they worked on developing it. And, like... Thanks to that and some other bakery recipes that they developed, I mean, with their own bakery that they bought, uh, the Swiss Colony has the largest hand-decorating bakery in America. This is according to their website, but I believe it. I do. Their baked goods uh, feel real. I mean, they're obviously at this point, it's like a large-scale operation. It's not like one single baker there making them all, but... Uh, compared to the food that I've encountered in these gift baskets we were to receive at work, these are like legit nice items to receive. So this company just kept growing and growing. And something that I found fascinating is as Swiss Colony grew and grew, Ray Kubli, the founder, was only doing it as a side hustle from 1926 to 1961, which Whoa. is 35 years <laughs> of working two jobs. Time. I know. In fact, the entire time he was doing this, he held on to his day job, which was also in the dairy industry, where he worked for Borden, wow. which is a name I recognize as like milk and cheese products. Well, yes, they do those the little um, the little uh, those little mini cheese wheels. Oh yeah, they do. Yes. they do. You're right. With the little yes. the wax covering, and you open it up, and totally. Mm-hmm. That's now that's a Christmas classic, yeah, right exactly. there. Um, and he worked his way up to vice president there. And I'm assuming the only reason he was able to do this is because Swiss Colony is such a seasonal business. Otherwise, yeah, I just don't know sense. how you how yeah. you do that. So over the years, Swiss Colony opened stores, like a lot of stores, and they closed stores. They've actually been incredibly smart about how they run their business. And that's like not something I get to say a lot because, you know, every time I look into a brand, especially one that's been around for a while, I found I find all kinds of like really dumb stuff they've done. They've done in terms of like stores and not, you know, not adopting technology fast enough. I mean, you you know how it goes. We always can we of were course. like, "Oh, if they hadn't done that, <laughs> then this wouldn't have right." But Swiss Colony has actually been pretty smart about like reading the writing on the wall and making changes. So they had a bunch of mall stores, they moved away. Um, And one thing that they did that was really smart is over the years, mostly in this century, they acquired more catalogs. And now they also make clothing, home goods, and all kinds of other gifts through their family of catalogs. And were you saying 
you know someone who is a designer for Swiss Colony? My parents' neighbor is a fashion designer for Swiss Colony, yes. And you were like, how could that be? And I was like, oh, it's because of all these other catalogs yes. that have names like Midnight Velvet and I just Ginnies. assumed it was like, oh, she's making costumes for like stuffed animals or for like, <laughs> you know, just Dream a job. Just, yeah, just a bunch <laughs> of crap. And actually, you know, just uh, uh, circling back in Wisconsin, um, we don't, like, people from Wisconsin don't necessarily, I mean, at least from my perspective, we don't actually consider Swiss Colony, we never really have as, like, a luxury cheese company. Um, it just, the cheese was never as good or as fresh as mm. the cheese that we would have um, from the grocery store or from some of the finer places. So it really, <laughs> I think it resonated more for people out of state. Because if we had, like, a Swiss Colony cheese, it'd just be like, eh, not as good. It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. But also, as a tradition, if you go into anyone's house in Wisconsin, um, mm -hmm. and you know, you could go over as like company. Just if you're going over to, even if you literally just pop in, they will literally go into the cheese drawer, pull out their favorite cheeses, slice you cheeses. You always have a cheese plate, but it's like grocery store cheeses of their favorite right, cheeses. Right. No, I love that. I love that. I would say like. I have had only the Swiss Colony cheeses a few times, and they're, like, fine. They're fine. But, like, I found better cheese at Trader Joe's. It's like Tillamook. It's better than, yeah, you know, it's, it's like it's It okay. hits the spot. It's yeah, cheese. it's fine. Um, but, like, the I, to me, I would say the baked goods are where it's gotcha. at, for sure. Um, they're so much better. But their summer sausage so, is pretty mean. I mean, you can't go yeah, wrong with delicious. the sausage. So there's a chain of... It's hard to describe what they are, but they're based here in Texas. They're kind of like a truck stop, except uh, tractor trailers aren't allowed there. Um, but that would be underselling it because it's also like a humongous store that carries clothing and cookbooks and all kinds of like live, laugh, love stuff, <laughs> but also tons of food. And they make they have a ton of private label like snacks and jams and stuff. It's called Bucky's. And it's a chain here in Texas. And when you come to visit me, I will take you okay, because excellent. I'm doing a bad job of describing it. But once you go, you have to go every time you see one. Um, <laughs> you know, and there's also like a hundred gas pumps there. So it's like families on road trips stop there. And there's always a guy dressed as Bucky who's a big beaver in a t-shirt and a hat. And he takes pictures with the kids. And it's like, there's always like a couple hundred people in there at all times. It's just so busy. And they make their own summer sausage. And it is off the hook. Oh, it is just so good. Summer but like, it's like, yeah, it's so good. You can get it like in little pre-sliced packs to eat in my car oh i'm like getting kind of excited thinking about it okay anyway so swiss colony um swiss colony also owns its own fleet of charter jets in the midwest um yeah because they were using those planes they started buying planes to you know transport executives yeah. and sometimes even products keep it fresh Right. And then they were like, oh, maybe we could just buy more planes and other companies could use them, too. And it's specifically just like Midwestern, mm -hmm. like routes. Um, so they have that, too. And uh, something that's interesting about Swiss Colony, and this is, once again, Swiss Colony not really doing the corporate gifting. They're off doing their own thing. They're really like direct to consumer. Um, so this is more like gifts people give to one another, not like weird impersonal gifts from your vendor. Um they offer just about everything on a payment plan and they kind of have for decades and decades. It's not unlike Afterpay yeah. where you might say, 
Hey, we're looking at this. I have this scan in here of a catalog from like the 70s. So these prices are hilarious. You know what, Kim? You're really important to me. So I'm going to get you the grand oh prize gift just, basket. I was just looking which at the is price. like, it looks like three cheeses, several summer sausages, some other thing I can't identify. Lots um, of like nuts. Nuts, like a royal mix. Yeah, some jams I see there back there. There's some chocolates, several torts. I mean, there's like a cheese wheel. I mean, this you deserve nothing but the best. I'm going to get this for you. It's 1995. <laughs> I know you're worried about how I can afford that. But the good news is I'm going to split it into five easy payments wow. of $6. Like, that's what they've been doing for a really long time. And so it makes these gifts really accessible to households with lower and middle incomes, which is like why my family would use Swiss. Like, Swiss calling to me is like part of childhood because of that it's like very reminiscent but like once again the cheeses are like not that great um but i still have a soft spot for swiss colony but swiss colony wasn't the only gourmet food catalog to emerge in the 1920s and 30s harry and david which is famous for their foil wrapped pears also began at that time i feel like that's how these always happen you know we did an episode a pair of episodes on close horse about catalogs like just like you know Sears, Montgomery Ward, that kind of stuff. And they all popped up at the same time. It's so interesting how these things happen. And especially in these times when people, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have television, they didn't really have magazines, yet all these people out there start having the same idea at the same time. Is It's like fascinating to me how that used to happen. Now when it happens, we're like, well, obviously, we're all following the same exactly, celebrities. Yeah. You know, it's like different. But back then, it's interesting. So Samuel Rosenberg owned a luxury hotel in Seattle. And according, this is according to the Harry David website. I have not verified this. A- apparently, it was a very successful luxury hotel. But his heart was really in the world of agriculture. He'd always dreamed of having his own farm. So in 1910, he purchased some pear orchards in southern Oregon. This might seem like a random choice to go from I ran a hotel but to now I'm moving to Southern Oregon to grow pears. But Rosenberg had sampled these specific pears at the previous year's Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, sort of like a a World's Fair kind of thing. And I was thinking as I was reading this about how wild it must have been to go to these big fairs like that. exactly. Because you didn't get exposed to stuff like that. A delicious pear. Do we know what kind of pear... This it was? I don't know how you pronounce this. I couldn't find it online. It's C-O-M-I-C-E. Comice. Comice. I, I, I don't know. Have you ever gonna, heard of these? No. <laughs> no. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, apparently these pears are particularly delightful. They're like mm. juicy and sweet. Um, and the orchards themselves dated back to the 1800s. Like these were some good pears. In 1914, his sons, Harry and David Rosenberg, took over the operations of the orchard, which is interesting to me because that was only four years after he bought it. But perhaps he was like, yeah, maybe I don't like agriculture yeah, as exactly. much as well, I thought. Now I'm just going to retire. Yeah, so they renamed the pears Royal Riviera, which is far more appealing. And they began selling them to European customers as a luxury item. They would like chill them in advance wow. so they would su- they would survive the trip and be delicious when they arrived. It is. It's like it's a, it's a luxury, but it's also like a um a novelty, like a it's like bananas, you know, like tropical. Yeah, but, but not totally. tropical. 
Yeah, but like from around, you know, halfway around the world. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So the thing, that business was actually going really well, but the Great Depression forced them to pivot to selling to U.S. customers. And by 1934, they was they were selling them via mail order, taking out ads in Fortune, National Geographic, and the New York Times. Soon they began offering these box of the month subscriptions of these pairs, which sounds lovely for a box of pairs to just show up at your house every month. I Sign me up. So sensual. So sensual. <laughs> so for sensual Christmas, you got to have the pairs. So... These were definitely like a luxury offering for the well-heeled customer. The average middle-class person was not getting fancy pairs delivered every month, right? Harry and David began to expand this business, like really tapping into this luxury market by introducing gift baskets and their signature Tower of Treats, uh, which included nuts, chocolates, and of course, pears. Gotta have the pears, right? Over time, they also acquired a baking company of their own and started adding baked goods. And they bought a citrus company so they could really round out their offering by also throwing some nice oranges and grapefruits, that kind of thing. Because these were still luxurious. Like, we take it for granted that we can just, like, walk over to the store and get an orange right now. But that was not that life then, you know? By the 80s, Harry and David was purchased by Nabisco. Oh, God. And... They were sold a few more times over the years, ultimately ending up in the hands of randomly 1-800-Flowers in oh, 2012. Not luxury. Not luxury. <laughs> I will say that Harry and David remains a bit more luxurious. Like, when I look at the baskets on their website, they seem a little bit more high-end. The price point's definitely higher. Um, you know, and they wrap the pears in gold foil. I mean, it's a very elegant experience, but I do believe that probably Nabisco buying them like really downgraded their offering. Yeah. I'm sure. Like they probably were like, you got to cut corners. We're putting Lorna Dunes in every basket, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I like, once again, nobody talks about this stuff. It's so fascinating. Um, much like Swiss Colony and all of these other gift basket companies, the vast majority of sales happen during the holiday season. And they are one of the largest employers in Southern Oregon that isn't a medical company. Really? Like a hospital. That's fascinating. But, I mean, it's a lot of seasonal jobs, yeah. of course. By the middle of the 20th century, pre-made gift baskets were starting to make their way into middle-class life as they became a part of both business gifting, as we know it, and were just generally considered a great gift for someone you didn't know super well, but wanted to impress. You know, your pastor, just your neighbors, throwing that kind your of thing. weight around in cheese. Yes, yes. And I would suspect that all of the gift basket companies mm -hmm. that existed at that point were probably better quality than the offering is now. Because there wasn't as much food science. You know what I mean? And it wasn't like, we got to cut corners yeah, here. Exactly. Like, we got to add a little bit less milk to the cheese and a little bit more some other thing. <laughs> Sugar. Um, you know, Sugar. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Corn so I'm syrup. Sure that these were still, like, pretty nice. Another company that grew out of that era was Hickory Farms, which I remember would pop at up at the mall when I was a kid. And they yes. all have, like, little red barns. Yes. Um, and that was started by a guy named Richard Ransom. He began by selling handcrafted cheeses at local farmer's markets in 1951. Um, it may be a coincidence, but eight years later in 1959, he added summer sausage to the mix. And I'm just saying he was able to open his first retail S store. Summer sausage. It really just, it, it's the clincher. It really is. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> 
<laughs> summer sausage, guys. That's God, the I thing. want some so, summer sausage. <laughs> I know, me too. I'm like, I'm gonna get in the car and drive to the nearest Bucky's, which is like near Waco. It's like an hour and a half drive, but I need this summer sausage. By 1981, Hickory Farms had more than 1,000 stores and seasonal kiosks in the U.S. And once again. These are stores that were just open for like eight weeks. Most of the business was done, you know, November, December. That was it. Um, Hickory Farms really focused on meats and cheeses, unlike, you know, Harry and David focusing on fruit, Swiss, Swiss Colony being about both cheese and baked goods. Hickory Farms was like, you get some meats, you get some cheeses. Somehow these are not going to need to be refrigerated. It's a miracle. <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle. And you know what? We'll throw in some mustard as a topic. But like you're not, we're not giving you a tort, okay? I, we don't have oranges. Get out of here. This is meats and cheeses. It's like the hungry man's version. It was. It was. And looking at vintage photos of their stores and their gift baskets, like the aesthetic is on point. Really is. I just love it so much. Hickory Farms was definitely focusing on the middle America mall customer. So it wasn't a luxury thing. It was just like, here's a nice gift. Um, it did eventually close all of its stores and move into an online uh, business in this century, um, which was, you know, probably very smart of them. Now, the company that I really just don't like that has seemed to corner I know, keep bringing the it up. market. I don't even know what this is. I've never even heard uh, of this. Well, if you've ever received one of these gifts, you here's the thing. You wouldn't know about this company if you didn't look at the return address on the box because okay. there's nothing else that will tell you that. But I started to see this on like when I was an assistant buyer and you know like when you're an assistant buyer, one of your jobs is to open the mail. And I would be like, wine country gift baskets? Is there wine in here? Mm, no. Next box. Mm, no. And then I learned to despise the wine country gift basket <laughs> because while there are baskets of wine, we never got them. <laughs> Oh, got it. <laughs> and I don't I don't know why. I don't know why. Um so when it comes to corporate gifting, the leader in these gift baskets is Wine Country Gift Baskets. And there are dozens <laughs> of other companies out there to do this for you, but this is like Your arch nemesis. My arch nemesis. There is not a lot of info out there about them. They don't even have a Wikipedia entry. But I would assure you that they are taking a big chunk of I that bet. 200 and something billion dollars in business each year. They offer a massive assortment of gift baskets ranging from just a mug with packets of cocoa called Snowman Surprise for 19.95 to an ultimate California wine <laughs> sleigh for $800. I've sh I've shared the picture of that here with you. What are you supposed to do with the this sled? I know exactly. It. I was just thinking it's that. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and that is a big ass sleigh because it's got six bottles of wine in it, among other things. It is huge. Um, not dissimilar to that canoe that we received where I was like, what are we supposed <laughs> to do with this huge straw canoe? It sat on, you know, like in one of our meeting rooms, you know, the classic, like very long table. It sat there for months with like two pens in it. <laughs> I don't ever know what happened to it after that. But finally, I someone mean, got sick of it and just threw it out. Yeah, which is so sad. That's what's going to happen to this sleigh. It's just future garbage. So it's just future garbage. And that's my problem with it. Mm -hmm. There's a bow, there's tons of plastic wrapping, wrapping. there's tons of filling Probably in there. Disgusting wine. Oh, the sugar yes. water. 
So I'm I, my that's my guess because their website doesn't give you a lot any real information except that all their wine comes from California wine country. I don't even maybe wait one of them one of them looks like it's the Blakemore Estates. <gasps> it's the Blakemore wine. Neil, is that good or bad? Well, Neil's last name is Blakemore, and he was talking about a winery that's called named after his last name. I'll ask him. Guys, I'll ask yeah, him. Yeah, you guys need to go and test it mm-hmm. out. So. While many of the largest gift basket companies grew by purchasing bakeries, vineyards, dairies, et cetera, of their own, so they could really control the production. I mean, we've seen this happen in all of these stories. Wine Country and many of the other gift basket companies seem to be buying a lot of private label foods. I wondered, where are they getting these items? Because there was something about them. As a person who has picked through a lot of these baskets over the years looking for a gluten-free item and failing every time, then eating something anyway that I couldn't eat, there was something about the packaging and the names that weren't really brands but acted like brands that reminded me of the food that you can buy at TJ Maxx. Exactly. Off-brand. Right. So way back in the first season of Close Horse, my friend, Salisha, wanted to do an episode about TJ Maxx. And the first half was all about the the clothes, you know, stuff like that, because she had worked for companies that made stuff for TJ Maxx, Marshalls, those kinds of companies. We were wondering for the second half, like, could we figure out the backstory of the food? Because it's very mysterious. We found a couple articles. There's very little. Once again, like gift baskets, uh, the food at TJ Maxx doesn't get a lot of press coverage. But I remember those because they were fascinating to me. And I went back and read them again. And so the story of the food at TJ Maxx is that they are made by companies that make other foods, right? Um, And what TJ Maxx does to get you to have fear of FOMO and just buy something when you see it there is for the food, they'll go to the company that makes it and they'll say, like, listen, we want a mixed prepack. So maybe every box that we receive from you has 12 items in it, and all 12 of them are different things. So, like, and if you're a buyer, a prepack is usually, like, sizes, right? It'll be, like, one extra small, one small, two mediums, two larges, that kind of thing. But instead here, they're saying, like, it's a prepack of a mango salsa and breadsticks <laughs> yes. and, like, pasta shaped like bows, whatever, right? And then they'll, like fully just ship that one box onto the store who will then open it and put it on the shelf and be all these random things and i actually suspect tj maxx does that with a lot of their beauty products too because it's like a similar situation so anyway a lot of the food that you get at tj maxx is actually made by like pretty decent food companies who sell their food other places too um sometimes even like really nice places but they might relabel it for tj maxx because tj maxx doesn't want anyone to know where the food comes from because they don't want that competition so it can also create that illusion of luxury where you're like i don't know if this is the right compare at price on here right because like you've never heard of it before this mango salsa which by the way that just just sounds so unappetizing keep a mango salsa away from me we accidentally bought one earlier this Mm. year and i'm still mad at myself dustin was like why did you get this and i was like i I don't know what happened to me i i was just i was sweaty it was busy i had out a coat it was making me hot was this at trader joe's yes i can just i can i can picture it 
And you know what? Like Trader Joe's is so stressful. It's extra stressful it here is. in Austin. It's like so packed, and I'm just like, stop touching my body. Fine, I'll get mango mango salsa <laughs> just to move on. You only have like if you walk up to yeah. a section of display, you have 15 seconds to make a choice because you must move on. Yes, right? exactly, and that's, exactly. Yes, yeah, so don't don't get mango salsa unless you love it, which then have all the mango salsa. So I'm thinking about how I suspected that probably a lot of these foods were coming from the same companies that make the TJ Maxx food. That makes so sense. So I went back, yes. I read those articles, and there were a few manufacturers quoted in them. And so then I visited their websites, and it does seem as if these companies are white labeling gift basket foods. Because yeah, I noticed- of course, for bulk, it's amazing. I mean, right? So I noticed that it would be like, about us. Here's the history of our company where we've been making spices for a hundred years or whatever. And then it would be like, in addition to selling to fine retailers, we also are a supplier for the gift industry. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, there you go. And I kept seeing that kind of verbiage over and over again. And it's like, really, when you look at these boxes, like I went through the, the Wine Country website and was just looking at some of the packaging and the brand names on them that's like hamilton house ministry of snacks mm-hmm. sonoma jacks <laughs> queen's delight lots of things that sound italian or french i mean it's like ridiculous you know um but these aren't real brands but they sure have designed the packaging to make them seem as if they are luxurious gourmet brands and so what i'm saying is like We follow this whole journey of gift baskets of being like once the nicest, most luxurious things you could find, kind of evolving into regional specialty foods, which were also luxurious, right? And then we're getting some Sonoma Jacks. Yes. You know, much like the the way skinny jeans turned into jeggings that stained your legs and lost their shape, the gift basket has lost its special meaning. It's no longer a gift of simple luxuries like delicious foods and drinks. It's become a massive industry of overpriced crackers, cocoa mix, and mysteriously unrefrigerated dairy. It's so weird how we ruin everything. It's true. Well, it was just 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 like we were talking about. It's all about the the dollar the dollar. It's all capitalism's uh-huh. fault. Now we've ruined gift hampers, exactly. everyone. Um, I would still say, though, that food is the best gift, right? I think it is. Rather than shopping from these big brands, because they're going to be overpriced anyway, you could assemble something yourself and tailor it to what the recipient likes. Plus, it's fun to go food shopping for someone else. I can say from firsthand experience that a lot of these big corporate gift baskets, they go to waste. And there's always this moment, it's in like late January, where you're sort of sorting through the remnants. They're always next to the printer at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, you find all that's left are some like hard candies and valley baking crisp breads. And you're wondering if you should just eat those or if you should like just go downstairs and get yourself a $10 salad. You know, like that's just where it ends. And then sometime, probably in February, someone dumps the whole thing in the trash. Um, If you are like the idea of assembling a gift basket or going to Trader Joe's or anything like that, sounds like a nightmare, you could check out your favorite grocery store because a lot of grocery stores, especially the nicer ones, have gotten into that business of making gift baskets that are pre-made and made of like good food. Or you could look on Etsy. That's There's like a cottage industry of awesome local uh, small batch gift baskets on there as well. 
Just do some Googling. So many smaller companies have popped up that create really nice baskets of nice food and condiments and just local delicacies that people want. And they're really bringing back that idea of specialness and luxury that once was the Christmas hamper. You know what I did for my sisters this this year for Christmas? Um, what did you do? I've been obsessed with these soup dumplings, these like frozen soup dumplings. Uh-huh. And you can send them with Ooh. the steamer and these sauces. These, and it's just one of the most amazing things. That's my hamper. That's my Christmas Whoa, hamper. Where did you get them? Oh, it's called like XCJ or something. They're hmm. incredible. XCJ dumplings. Yes. And, wow, that is a great catch. Oh my God. And they're just so good. And honestly, they're quite life changing because. Um, we eat them a lot at our at at our place. We just make us we make us like a salad, and then we'll just throw these things in the steamer. And oh, that's amazing! They're, and they're, that's amazing. They, they taste. It tastes like you're at um. Gosh, what's that really great place that we always go to when you're in town? Din Tai They taste like Din Tai Fung, and the uh, sauces are are authentic too. Wow, that's amazing, mm-hmm. man! You just made me so hungry for Din Tai Fung. Oh my god, it's been it's been ages. <laughs> Um, they opened one in Vegas on the Strip, and I did go there this summer. It was amazing. I was so happy. It's in the Aria Hotel, if anyone was wondering. Um, <laughs> just, yeah. It was so expensive, though. That place has gotten so expensive. Anyway, yeah, that's all I really have to say about food baskets. As we were working our way through this, I was thinking about how Bringing this conversation full circle, in my experience, a country that does an incredible job of continuing to protect, promote, and really create jobs and industry out of seasonal foods is Japan. Mm, Um, Every train station is filled with local food gifts that you can buy and take home, you know, because gifting is a big deal yeah, there. Culturally, Someone you it's dinner. extremely yeah. big. Like right. you, you bring gifts with you everywhere you go. Exactly, exactly. And food is a big part of that. All of the bigger train stations, whether it's like Kyoto or Tokyo or Osaka, have huge, huge like areas where it's just food gifts. And they're all local and they're like local delicacies. And another thing that I love about the Japanese train stations is that often there'll be like one sort of store that you can go in where you can get bento boxes that are made of foods from different regions of the country. And they're super fun too. And sometimes you can get ones that this feels very bad for the environment, but you pull this like string and it cooks the food while you're sitting on the, oh on the train. It's crazy. Um, but it's a great way to like try stuff from different regions. And they preserve this idea of regional food specialties. And like we don't really have that as much here yeah, anymore. Like the preciousness of things. Yeah. And the story behind mm-hmm. them. You know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Like there's, it's it's all about the people who lived there and the lives that they live and what they brought with them, whether they emigrated there or grew up there, that create these regional foods. And I just, I think that like we don't really have that now. You know, I've done a lot of reading recently about how regionalism sort of died starting in the 90s here in the United States, and then it picked up a lot of momentum in the century thanks to the internet. Exactly. And now it's like a monoculture. Like we're just yeah. all doing the same thing. Yeah. Have you looked at bo- uh, Boxu? I think it's um, it's an online uh, 
retailer of Japanese delicacies. Interesting. Hmm. I have not. I will. Ha- I will send it. I think it's like B O K K Baksu. It means box in Japanese, of course. Hmm. And it's um, it's a subscription, and they do pre- um premium Japanese gifts. Whoa, nice. Yeah, yes. I mean, the f- I will tell you, the sweets in Japan are top notch because mm-hmm. they're not very sweet. They are, and there's a lot uh, of green tea. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, trust me. Like we we have a tradition when we go to Japan that the first thing we do, you know, we go check in the hotel and by the time that happens we are like zombie people but what keeps us going what keeps us alive and makes us stay up as late as 8 p.m on our first night is that after we've checked in we like change some clothes and then we go out and we walk to 7-eleven and we buy all the foods that we missed from the last time that we have been like dreaming of so like the egg salad sandwiches and noodles and desserts and stuff like that and we have a oh, big yes. picnic buffet on our bed in our yes. hotel room sorry that probably scandalized someone that we would be eating in bed <laughs> but japanese hotel rooms are tiny yeah they really are um and it is like just the best thing i just uh i can't wait i'm gonna eat so much food <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm jealous all right, well, that ends the second half of our holiday spectacular. We'll be back next week with our trend predictions for the next year. And I can't wait to hear what yours are, Kim, because I've been coming up with some wild ones. I might need to rein it back in a little bit. But <laughs> I thought, like, wouldn't it be great for us to predict some trends that we think are going to come? And it's going to be like social trends, social media trends fashion trends, food trends, all that stuff. And then we can kind of, as the year progresses, see how right we were and, you know, check at the end of the year. Sounds great. All right. Well, that's coming next week. Bye. Bye -bye. 